Welcome to CMO Confidential, the podcast that takes you inside the drama, decisions, and choices that go with being the head of marketing. Hosted by five-time CMO, Mike Linton. Welcome marketers, advertisers, and those who love them, the Chief Marketing Officer Confidential. CMO Confidential is a program that takes you inside the drama, the decisions, and the politics that go with being the head of marketing at any company in what is one of the most scrutinized jobs in the executive suite. I'm Mike Linton, the former Chief Marketing Officer of Best Buy, eBay, Farmers Insurance, and Ancestry.com, here today with my guest, Rob Pace. Today's topic, talking about social impact, the marketplace, the customer, and the marketer. Uh, now, Rob is a Robert Half board member. There's a lot of Robs in this whole thing. And former Goldman Sachs partner who went on to found a company called 100X. It's a startup that is now nearly 11 years old, and it's designed to rethink consumer research by helping charities raise money. They call it doing good to do well, and he is here today to talk about how to think about social impact and listening to customers. Welcome, Rob. Thanks, Mike. All right, Rob, first question. There is so much discussion about socio-political stands, how to use social impact, whether it really matters, how to even measure it. Let's start with the definition of social impact. What's your definition? And then we can go right into why does it matter and how to measure it. But let's start with the definition of social impact. Okay. So the first thing I would say is my opinion means next to nothing, but we have 11 million summaries from customers. And so what I'm more able to do is be the reporter of what, what we're hearing. And as Excellent. you point out, it's a very ill-defined area and it's it's cousin ESG, which is in my world of investing is sort of similarly uh, an area that feels very fluid. So here's what we're hearing from customers. And if I had to leave you with sort of one high level thought, it's much more than CSR or corporate social responsibility. It actually is integrated with the business. So when we listen to the feedback we get across 3000 brands, there's sort of two buckets as it relates to social impact. One, I would say, is the more uh, obvious one of community impact, social stances, um, sustainability, et cetera, the things you might see in a report. But then there's also this heavy, heavy emphasis on, do I trust you? Are your products reliable? How do you treat me as a customer when nobody's looking, et cetera? So I think the whole point is social impact to the consumer is an and. It's both those things as opposed to kind of the headlines that you read about the more traditional kind of ESG metrics. Now, now let me make sure I'm getting this right, because I think this is a super important point you made. And uh, it, it, one of this is stuff I can measure, social impact I can I can see or measure. The other is you're my neighbor and I know you're there for me. Like I know if I don't bring in the garbage cans, you'll bring them in for me or take my mail, you look over my house. I don't have to, I, I don't even measure that. I just know it's there. Is that is that what you're talking about in part two of this? Yes, absolutely. And I'll give you, uh, I can't tell you probably thousands of verbatims that I read that sort of says things like their employees don't seem very happy, right? Yeah. You just sense it. Now that's a very different concept on whether or not they pay above minimum wage or, but so you as a consumer, you see how they treat you in key moments. And that's a big part. And I think one of our big takeaways, Mike, is if you don't treat me well as a uh, when nobody's looking, I don't believe any of the other stuff that you tout publicly. 
So, so we tell me how you know this matters because I know you're going to get into the data now. And then while you're at it, tell me how you measure it and then how you know it matters in any order you want to do that with. Okay. So the way our technology works, and we'll get into, we have a unique way we source the panel, but first of all, our feedback providers pick the brands. We don't tell them. They're picking across their full wallet. And we've developed a methodology where they go through- hey, Just one thing, the feedback provider, that's the consumer, right? Correct. Okay. That's good. correct. Yeah. So the consumer who are actual customers, and we can talk about the incentive for them to participate, but they're going through and they pick the brands. And then the way our technology is, is set up is they go through and say, here's what I like, here's what I don't. And it starts out as an emoji and they select some things, they skip things, and we ask them about the things they select. So here's point one in the data. We have a, an overall headline called brand values and trust. And you as a consumer can go through there and you can say it's good, it's not good, or skip it. 78% of the time it's skipped, meaning it didn't rise to the level of me saying, I have a point of view on whether I, you know, your brand values and trust matter or are good or bad. What an opportunity for marketers, point one. The, the natural, and for context, something like quality might be 80% of the time good or bad. So the, the first question that that brings to mind is, well, maybe this whole area is overhyped and people don't really care. They just want to buy stuff. Yeah, Not so these brands are just in a vacuum of, I don't care, I just want to buy mayonnaise. Okay, yeah. not so fast. Yeah. Because when it is called out, that 22%, it is more predictive than every other variable we track amongst hundreds other than one, taste at a restaurant. If you have bad tasting food, it is determinative of future purchase satisfaction. The second highest variable is if, you, if, you, if I called you out as either having positive brand values and trust or negative, it is the second most predictive. So it does matter a lot and it doesn't matter just a small cohort, almost everyone who provides us feedback has at least a few brands that they call out as doing it well or not. So here's the, here's the summation. It really matters when it matters, and the opportunity is for your audience to make it matter more, and we can talk about how you do that. So in other words, 78% of your consumers are going through and you're not you're not rising to the level that they're calling it out. And so this you you are attaching this to financial metrics and sales. How do you do that and how do you know that's right? Well, we have see this is where my my prior history is. So, number one, we ask people the question about future purchase intent. Are you in the future are you going to buy it more or less the same, et cetera? So we can certainly correlate it to that. We can correlate it to NPS. We can correlate it to a bunch of things. But the reason we have a confidence in this whole listening approach is we have 150 public, public, large publicly traded companies we track. We know that in our data, if there's a material change, in other words, there's an inflection point that yeah. within two quarters, that company is either going to miss estimates or beat in the direction. So we've been able to establish that connection, which then, of course, flows through to stock price. So that's how we have a confidence level that this is this is important. I would say that then the natural question is, okay, so how do you make it so that it's more than 
Right. And the answer is you integrate it with your business. So I can't tell you how many comments we get on Chewy talking about how they handle it when your pet dies or Ari and their body positive messages. So in other words, they integrate it with their business. It's not about, it's not about adopting some UN protocol or something, you know, carbon neutral. That just doesn't resonate with the consumer. What resonates is if you can integrate it with, with your business. And it sounds like what really resonates much more than the big story is the personal experience. Exactly. Well, now, I, I, for those of you, I should have said, probably said this in the beginning. Rob uh, was an investment banker at Goldman who did help take Microsoft public. So he's coming from a heavy financial background. We're going to get into that in a minute. But a lot of a lot of marketers out there use Net Promoter Score, and they have a slew of brand tracking, and they're usually their own, the big brands, their own re, in in house research teams. They're fumbling on a lot of this. Tell me, how do I think about this? in the context of NPS and all the panel re- research that's available to all the, all the marketers out there? Well, let's, uh, first of all, just to correct, I was the most junior bag carrier in 1986 when Microsoft went public. So my role in, you know, in that company was, you know, like carrying books. So right. just, I wasn't there, so I'm still jealous. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, and, and also let me acknowledge, we compete against some of the things you mentioned. So I'm not a completely unbiased party. But the first thing is, how do you recruit sort of typical consumers? And our belief is that most of the brand tracking and other things are professional survey takers who some of these panels are getting very, very worn. And the people who will do it in exchange for an Amazon gift card or whatever it is may not be representative of the typical customer. So you got to figure out a way to to mobilize them. So that's point one is you got to start with the right group. But then to your question about NPS, and I actually, you know, was developed by Bain and others. I actually think it's a really smart thing. We use it, but it's not nearly as predictive as some of the other things. So let me give you a very tangible example. Over the last three years, the cruise line industry has gone from near death with the pandemic to this meteoric return. Yeah. During that whole period in our data for Carnival, Royal Caribbean, Norwegian, the NPSs were kind of the same throughout that whole period. Yet our future purchase intent and other things we looked at, not surprisingly predicted this massive decline, which anybody could have predicted because of the pandemic, but a meteoric rise back up much faster than airlines, much faster than booking sites, much faster than travel. And indeed, it's been the top performing sector through the first half, with the exception of the Magnificent Seven in tech, of anyone. So my whole point is, it's not predictive, right? So it has a job to do, but it's not predictive of of future demand and where the market's headed, et cetera. Got it. Hey, so I want to get into the financial stuff a little bit now, because you come from Obviously, I guess you were just a junior bag carrier on the Microsoft deal, but I know you did some other deals and you come from a heavy M&A background. Why move from that kind of background into consumer research and marketing? Yeah, so um, here I'm kind of a pattern recognition person. And so here was my pattern recognition dealing with hundreds of companies over 25 years and, you know, taking them public or or selling them or helping them buy somebody. 
the the firms that won over time were the ones who had customer results or outcomes as their true north. Yeah. And it was actually very rare. Most companies, I, I'd sit down with business leaders and I'd say, tell me about your business. And nine out of 10 times, Mike, they would tell me about their sales, their product line, et cetera. Every once in a while, I'd find that exceptional leader where she or he would say, we solve this problem. We do this better than anybody else. So their true north was the outcome they were creating. Those companies always won over time because they had no sacred cows, but it's rare, right? And so I came to the conclusion that I actually was in your business of listening to the customer, understanding the job to be done and how to differentiate much more than I was in the financial business. So I would actually say I, the, the light bulb for me was that these two things were much more integrally linked. It's just nobody had done a good job of connecting the dots. So, so if I'm reading this right, and I'm just going to paraphrase this, you tell me if I get it wrong, which is uh, all your financial training led you to believe that this is a key unexplored financial metric and that you decided, okay, I'm going to build something out to make this work. And, and if I'm getting it right, and and you can help me with this. The way you prove it works is you can you can look at it backwards based on what consumers were saying and get, give me an example of how you know it works on the financials. I know you were talking about predicting the future of a quarter, but yeah. tell me how you know this works because NPS will say over time it works on retention, and if the NPS is going down, you're going to lose retention, and they can coordinate with segments. Almost everybody makes this claim. Make yours. Okay, let's start out. I'm gonna I'm gonna move backwards and then go forward. So all the great I'm a strategy wonk. All the great strategists, Peter Drucker, Clay Christensen, they've all boiled it down to essentially the same thing. What job is the customer hiring you to do? And do you do it better than their other alternatives? It makes perfect sense. So you have to have a way to put yourself in the customer's shoes. So it's actually a relative game, not an absolute game, right? You can be doing okay and your trends can look fine, but if somebody else has this trajectory, it can be it can be too late. So the gold standard, a lot of our clients are institutional investors and they look at hundreds of data sources called alt data and credit card data, you name it, yeah. et cetera. The gold standard is you go back in time, you look at, okay, what would the metric yeah, have predicted? Does this, does this predict? Yeah, and and- as I said, it's not perfect, but two thirds of the time when we see a material inflection relative to the competitive set, that's a key thing. It's a material inflection and it's relative. We know within two quarters, it's gonna show up in a big way. So, and that's the connection that has been missing. And if I can be a bit of a, a finance geek just for a minute. Too late. Okay. <laughs> you've done it. No, you've done it already. Go All ahead. All right. Well, I'm going to even go deeper before you pull me back. Okay. When you value a company, and I was in charge of doing that at Goldman Sachs. So, you know, this is actually one of the few things I know something about. When you value a company, there is a short-term measure like earnings, yeah. right? Which you, which a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to predict next quarter, but then there's this thing that's called the the multiple. It's really how much, how, how it's called the P multiple. Like how sustainable is that earnings? Each multiple point for the S&P 500 is $1.7 billion. 
Right. And when I would sit there and 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 kind of predict these multiples that we would go out out with to the market, what I was trying to figure out is, do they have a right to win? Like, is the market going to go up for their product, and do they have a right to win? Right now, that is where I think the mark your audience could play such a bigger role than they do currently is they should be the chief market officer, right? I should be turning to them to say, okay, what's your right to win? And yet those people were never in the room. This is, I think, a, a really important topic for, for the listeners, which is the, the value of the company is, is expected winning margin over time is how I, I would I would think about PEs. And sales overnight, brand over time is one of the other things we've talked about on the show. But the brand over time, it has to stay, keep its competitive position. And that requires investments. And if you tear apart the market stuff, and Rob, give, correct me if I'm wrong, when the PE goes down, that is usually either earnings are getting slaughtered or people don't believe the company has its mojo anymore. Yeah, and I won't embarrass the name, but I was talking with the leaders of a uh, over a hundred billion dollar company, and they were talking about how great they are and blah blah. And our data was not showing that. And I ultimately had to say to them, "You have a PE multiple of seven, and yeah. the market is nineteen right now. So at least you know you maybe don't believe what these twenty thousand consumers are telling us, but at least believe you're not communicating your right to win." So I think there's such an opportunity for the marketers, particularly in a world where it's more dynamic, to basically be the people who are developing that broader narrative and translating it into my old world of finance, they should be the people in the room, actually. I, I agree with that. And we have, we have a couple shows uh, on why marketers should speak finance and why you should have a marketing CFO in your group. But let's talk about, can you can you talk about any specific companies or industries that are getting a lift in the social impact space as you measure it and who might not be getting a lift. All right. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to embarrass people, but as I said, it's not so much industry specific. It is company. Uh, it's company specific. So the first thing, and I think I've heard you articulate this in the past is it is asymmetric getting it wrong is more punitive than getting it right. Yeah, completely. So, That's right. And there's many examples of that right now. Bud Light, Target, you know, you can go, you know, that are very high high profile. So it's it's uh, it's more idiosyncratic to the company versus, say, the industry. Although there are industries, let me give you a great example. Years ago, not not too many years ago, two or three years ago. Who was at the top of the social impact ESG rankings? The social media companies, because they weren't polluters, et cetera, et cetera. And then everybody figured out, wait a sec, I'm worried about my security. They're giving my teenage daughter a nervous tick, et cetera. And that's what we were seeing in our data is like, there was a trust issue in built in their product. So that would be an example of people who aren't getting it right. Right now in finance, we're starting to see companies that, for example, are giving you a competitive interest rate and some of those other things that historically they haven't done uh, really start to distinguish themselves. So again, it's less about industries. It's it's back to this this simple point of how do you behave when nobody's nobody's watching. So I think there's also another story in this finance one, which is be first, be ahead. Like it, like 
okay, one of the things I used to hate about uh, AT&T at the time was if you would have to sign up for whatever you were doing when you went internationally or they would just bill the hell out of you. But right. if you signed up, they would give it to you. And and if you got to the country, it would they would tell you, hey, you know, you're going to rack up a really big bill. And I'm like, couldn't you just give me the best plan for me or give me a choice? Did you have to wait till I like, I, is it all on me? And I think, I think this being in front of the good news or being honest with the bad news is super important. Am I getting that wrong or not? You're, you couldn't be, you couldn't be more correct. And I'll give you a couple of examples from our data. There's a publicly traded company called interactive brokers, and they have a very simple ad that shows the amount of interest they're paying on your deposits, which is over 4% compared to all of the major uh, yeah. financial firms who are paying you like 10 basis points, et cetera. Right. And in our data, they have skyrocketed because the old, the old paradigm was the consumer isn't going to switch. You can basically lag doing the right thing and keep that, keep that spread. The second thing is, is like this notion of you'd be a rube if you didn't switch credit cards, you know, frequently because right. the deal for the new consumer is so much better than the, how in right. the world does that make any sense? No, it doesn't because, you know, then a lot of people just cancel and re-up or they call up and go give me the new deal. And then they feel bad about the card. We won't even talk about the cable companies. Um, <laughs> hey, so I want to go back a little bit. Um, you know, you you did a lot of road shows, which is when you're taking a company public. Um, and you mentioned to me when we were chatting that uh, CMOs were often not or never, I believe is the word you use, in the road show when the company was presenting to potential investors. Why not? All right. Well, I'm going to say something. I hope this is not offensive to your audience, but it's but it's. I think what was going on behind the scenes. So first of all, let's let's agree that the the, the CEO can bring whoever they want. It's not like right. we have a prohibition that says no marketers on the roadshow, right? right? They can bring whoever they want. So let's let's de let's deconstruct the job to be done on a roadshow. So your job on a roadshow is to explain your current results and back to my other point, why you're going to win in the future. Explain and this is before you issue the stock, which then, you know, hopefully right. rises up. So you're trying to get this oversubscribed by, uh, you know, all the big, all the big players. Yeah. And it creates, there's, they, they, they either have a lot of momentum and people, investors are trying to decide like, so they look at the current business model and that makes sense that the, that the CFO is in the room, right? They're right. looking at the margin structure, all that, like current results, but who should be in the room to talk about why you're going to win, what the market is? I know you would argue that your audience should be in the room. But the controversial thing is, in my estimation, what the CEOs did is they picked who they thought were the best business people to go right. with them. And so fairly or not, they thought maybe more. Uh, one of your other guests had talked about historically like brand and demand generation was like, our swim lane, yeah. that's too narrow, right? I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. So, so I think that's my observations is in, in having observations in the hundreds, they were never in the room at the most, you know, taking your company public or selling it are the most important transactions you're ever going to do. 
And so they hadn't defined their role or their position in the organization. And I think the opportunity is for them to develop the enterprise narrative, which includes valuation, includes all these other things. I think that's the next generation uh, of CMOs. I agree with this because I think investors don't really care about any of the marketing metrics that aren't sales or projected sales and projected profit. And so the, the marketer should be writing him or herself into that business plan, but also into the story of how is this going to translate for the people that invest in the company? Um, and there's there's we do have a bunch of shows on that, which brings me to my next question is, but there are a bunch of CMOs that do that pretty well. How come there aren't more CMOs on boards? Because I think it's a very, a lot of our listeners, a lot of our guests have called this out. It's a very underrepresented C-level job on the uh, in boards. Why, why is that? I think it's part of it is what I just articulated <laughs> was there's the assumption that, hey, this person doesn't have the empathy for the key issues that I have as the business leader. And I'm trying to get this kitchen cabinet around us. I think there's also a pragmatic issue of, you know, you need somebody from IT or there's right. certain disciplines, right? And and you know better than anybody, everybody thinks that they have a marketing, you know, a, uh, opinion, even when most of us don't. So it's a little bit viewed as is something like people know, even though they don't. But yeah. I think it's more about the defining your distinctiveness and connecting it to financial outcomes. It's been too squishy maybe to put it in, a, in another I way. I think that's fair. A lot of marketing has been really squishy. And and also then it's been, I, I think defending your turf based on judgment is not the way to go. Uh, yeah. You have to defend your turf based on math. Okay. So, well, I hope we can change this marketers on boards more. So as we run towards the end of the show, last topic, and it's two parts. You can You have to pick one of these two or both, but you must pick at least one. Um, funniest story you can tell on the air and or any practical advice you would give our listeners that we haven't talked about yet. Okay, real quick, practical advice. And I'm I'm stealing this from my friend, John Hayes, who was a legendary marketer at Amex. Yeah, at, American at, Express. At, yeah, American Express. He's the one who taught me about enterprise narrative and it's, it's brand, it's right to win, it's all these things. So make sure you're at the center of the enterprise narrative. Now, uh, funniest story, I will tell you as a startup, just a just a stupid, stupid example. So first of all, I named our company originally Good Snitch. And uh, I had to rebrand. So it was truly stupid. Uh, because it turns out I'm from a little small town, I didn't realize like snitches were a real thing. So that was that was like really dumb. So uh, and then we had an idea to get people to do it. We originally had an app, which I lost several million dollars on because nobody wanted to download my app including my own kids. They didn't even have my app to give feedback. So that was in the year. But we hit on this idea that we were going to give away $1,000 every day through our app. And it was going to go half to the to the consumer who provided us feedback. And we, had, we still have this thing that is my favorite thing where you can do a shout out to an employee yeah. and half to the person that was recognized. So we allocated $100,000, 100 days, and we, we would get people to do the app. Well, just try this out, Mike. So, so the feedback providers, first of all, nobody believed, they all thought it was too good to be true. So we had like 17 downloads. So your, you know, your, uh, uh, your chances of winning every day, $1,000 were like 10%. 
Yeah. You know, so uh, and and so nobody believed it. We did radio ads. Nobody believed it. And then try this someday. Call up a business and say, "Hey, do you have a mic in pharmacy? Because I want to give them five hundred dollars." <laughs> right. Like I want someone to call me that because yeah. that would be. I mean, I would actually pay attention to that call. And Rob, if you want to call me, I'm yeah. I'm available. But I think that must have been. That's the kind of thing you want to record and put on late night talk shows. Yeah. So. Just for the record, you know, saying that you're going to be a company nobody's ever heard of and giving away a thousand dollars is uh, it just didn't work. So any of your marketing audience that's thinking about good snitch or doing that, I will counsel them against it. Yes. Imagine that your kids didn't want to download the good snitch app. So, OK, <laughs> I think that even for a thousand dollars. If I'd been in that office, I would have been calling in every minute for the thousand dollars. So, so I think this is a great story to end on. Thank you, Rob, and thanks to everyone for listening to CMO Confidential. Look for more of our shows on Evergreen, Spotify, Apple, and YouTube, which include an operations-trained CEO dishes on what he really thinks about marketing. <clears throat> A media maven discusses the marketplace, media, and CMOs. A primer on the marketing CFO, which is one you really want to listen to after this show. And the case for simplicity in a complex world. Hey, all you marketers out there, stay safe. This is Mike Linton signing off for CMO Confidential. Today's episode of CMO Confidential is brought to you by CMOcoaches.com. Are you a current or aspiring chief marketing officer looking to take your career to the next level? You should work with a CMO coach. CMO coaches are former CMOs who are nationally certified coaches. So whether you want to improve your leadership skills, develop your team, or drive better business results, we have the experience and expertise to help you succeed. To learn more, visit us at cmocoaches.com. Are you tired of the same old productivity hacks? Have you read the top 20 books on effectiveness and yet your work days and email inbox still causing anxiety, burnout, and even depression? Ready to learn the latest in brain-based modalities, techniques, and technologies to optimize your success and well-being? Welcome to the Focus to Evolve podcast where we'll illuminate your path to spacious productivity and balanced thriving. Each week, we dive into deeply insightful and immediately impactful methods to help you become highly effective while promoting health, profitability, and well-being. Say goodbye to the trance of busyness and hello to your highest potential. It's time to discover a new way of accelerating your mission, growth, and purpose. Join us on the Focus to Evolve podcast and get ready to live your most joyful, productive, and fulfilling life. Great careers are forged out of great relationships. Your success, whatever your field, relies and thrives on the support and insights of others. I'm Andy Lapata, an author and speaker on the power of professional relationships. In the Connected Leadership podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing people from around the world to understand the relationships that have made a difference on their journey and how their insights can help you. From Nobel Prize winners to Olympians, from NASA astronauts to peace campaigners, my guests have shared some captivating moments from their lives and careers. Combined with experts from leading universities, 
cutting-edge authors and giants of business, the Connected Leadership Podcast aims to inspire, educate, and entertain. 